We'll turn now to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 9, question and answer 26. Again, this is the first article of the Apostles' Creed. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good Whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow, he is able to do so as Almighty God and willing also as a faithful Father. After the sermon, we will sing in response to the gospel, Psalm 103, stanzas 5 and 7. Psalm 103, stanzas 5 and 7 after the sermon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, here in Emmanuel, you have begun the regular journey through the Apostles' Creed. If you think about the, the path that you've been on so far through the catechism since you've begun at Lord's Day 1 some weeks ago, well, you understand the reason that we're taking the time to do this again. We're taking a lot of time to, to go through this creed of the church. You're going through it with a really fine-toothed comb, trying to really understand the richness of the faith that the church professes. What exactly are we saying every single week when we make the confession of faith using generally the Apostles' Creed or, as we did this afternoon, the Nicene Creed? Well, from the beginning of the Catechism, so since Lord's Day 1, there's a certain understanding that is being given. We've been shown how we need salvation, and we're shown the way that we can have salvation by the work of Jesus Christ, and that we can only grab hold, lay hold of all the benefits of Christ by faith. Faith is how we receive the benefits of the work that Jesus Christ has done. It's by believing what God has revealed and believing that His promises are not only for others, but also for us. And so now we're starting this creed, and this is actually, we're doing this in response to the question that is asked at the very end of Lord's Day 7. Well, almost the end of Lord's Day 7. We understand what true faith is, and then in question and answer 22, we're asked, what then must a Christian believe? There are certain things that we have to believe, and the question there is, what exactly do we have to believe? And the answer there is, all that is promised us in the gospel. So we must believe everything that God promises 
in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. So, this is what we're about to do. We're about to set off through the Apostles' Creed, understanding this faithful summary of all that God has promised us in the gospel. We have to understand that that's what God's Word is. God's Word isn't just information. It's not just statement of fact. But God's Word for us is His promise. We believe what He has promised us. And so here we go. Now there's some, there's some popularity, especially these days, behind the idea that churches should not have creeds and confessions, that these are man-made documents. Why do, we, why do we put so much weight on them? Why do we every single week say, well, the sermon this afternoon is based on Lord's Day such and such from the Heidelberg Catechism? Well, we're not preaching. This isn't the text for the sermon. We're using this as an outline to, to gain an understanding of the whole of the Christian faith. This is actually something that, that the Apostle Paul assured the elders of Ephesus before he left them and departed from them. He said, I did not shrink back from teaching you the whole counsel of God. That doesn't mean that he divided very carefully every single letter of the Hebrew Scriptures. Rather, it means that he taught them a faithful and true summary of all that is necessary for our salvation. And so we, we continue in a very good tradition this afternoon. And creedal statements, formulations, aren't anything new. There are hints of these things in the Scriptures themselves. In Romans 10, uh, the Apostle Paul says that if you believe in your heart that God or that Christ, uh, or if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a creedal statement. That's a confessional statement. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, he appeared in the body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And in many translations of the Bible, in many printings of it, you can see that it's actually printed, it's presented in the text um, in, in a very unique way. And it's very clear that that selection of text is a specific genre. It's a creedal statement. One more example before we move on. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. These are the things that we must believe in order to be saved. Right? And the church took the very beginnings of these creedal statements and developed them, filling them out, not with new material, but filling them out with what God has promised in his word. This is what we must believe, the promises of God, and we declare what we believe when we make the confession of faith like we did this afternoon. And so we declare, first of all, the first thing we declare is that we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This is the first article of the Apostles' Creed. This is who God is. That's our theme for this afternoon, and we'll see three aspects of that. First, we'll see that God is the creator. 
We'll see secondly that He is the Father of Christ, and we'll see finally that He is my Father. So first, God is the Creator. In the daily busyness of our lives, it's quite possible for us to to have our attention completely overtaken by all of the little details that we are engaged in, all of the details of school, the details of work, home life, friendships, relationships, all of these things, and all those little details consume us. We're consumed with what we eat and drink, what we wear, what's on our schedule for the day or for the week. The conversations we'll have, the conversations that we have had, we might think of, of nothing except for how to organize all of these things and how to get all these things done in the limited time that we have. And it's really possible for us, if, this is, if, if our lives are, are so full of, of all of these little things, it's really possible for us to start living and thinking really shallow and earthbound and self-centered lives. Nothing of substance, we're just consumed by the details of life. Or we might be consumed with, you know, everything that, that's wrong in the world, raging against the, the corruption, uh, all the injustice. We can be consumed with arguing and petitioning, contending with people who have, you know, very important but differing opinions than we have. And so we're consumed by, by, by big major events, but the same shortcoming can be there. We can be living largely horizontal lives. We can't see any further than what's going on on the surface of the earth. It's really easy to keep our feet and our thoughts planted on the ground, living daily life in an earthbound way, and forgetting, forgetting to consider the cosmic and supernatural scope of the life that God has given us. But when we make this confession about God, the creator and sustainer of this world, then at least for a minute we're forced to stop all of those shortcomings and consider what really matters. Remember, first of all, that the world that we live in is God's world. God created this world. And when we recited Psalm 104 a little while ago, we had that reading from that amazing psalm. Well, I hope that it's true for you as, as it is for me that the mind is directed where it's supposed to be directed, back to the majesty and power of our God. God uses this psalm to remind us of the order and the beauty with which he created this world and how he sustains it with his power. His care over the world, his care over, over the life that he's breathed into this universe. We see the richness of this world, the fertility of the land, the way that he showers the forest with rain, the animals drink from the streams and the lakes. Their thirst is quenched because of God. 
He causes plants to grow, trees to flourish, vegetation to, to fill the earth with beauty and with life. We see the stars in the, in the sky, the moon in its course, the galaxies that all speak about the power and wisdom of our God. We re- finally remember all of these things. And we're humbled by, by the grandeur of all of this. And this is the first thing we confess. God. The world we live in was formed by Him. He formed it out of absolutely nothing. How powerful He is. He spoke it into existence. That's how it all started. God said, let there be light. And there was light. He formed everything by speaking them into existence. And he maintains this world by that same incredible power. You know, every once in a while we get the opportunity to, to jump in the car and, and drive out of the city and, and drive through places like, you know, Jasper National Park. And if you've ever gone down like the Icefields Parkway, you get the sense of, or even just a glimpse of how many trees there are in this world. These, you see this, this blanket, almost a carpet of trees covering the mountains, and it almost looks just like a little fuzz over these, these gigantic, enormous mountains. And then you, you stop for a second and think, our God knows every one of these trees by name. And not only every one of these trees, but but every pine needle on every tree is accounted for. And not one of those trees, or not one, of, one pine needle, falls to the ground or is, or is burned up by a fire without his counsel, without his will. That's our God. That's the creator of this world. That's the extent of his, his power and his wisdom, his efficacy over all that he has made. This is God. That's our starting point. What do we believe? That, that this is God's world and that God is very good. He created a good world. And when we look around, we see very clearly that it has a lot of problems in it. We see all of the corruption. We see sin and death. We're reminded of these things all the time. We have loved ones who, who are ill we have loved ones who, who succumb to diseases and whose lives are snuffed out in, in our estimation too early than, than, than we would have decided. We see how people betray one another and, and sin against one another. And so the world isn't perfect anymore. And I would imagine that next week when you go through Lord's Day 10, You'll gain even more in an understanding of how the world got the way it is. But you'll also gain an understanding of even though the way, even though the world is full of this corruption, God is still sustaining it and governing it by his almighty and loving power, despite all of the trauma, despite all of the evil that we encounter. We believe in God. 
What better foundation could, could we start with than having a confidence in the designer, the great designer of this world, the governor of this world that we live in? We don't have to look very far to see the evidence of his wisdom and his power that he uses to maintain all of this. He is powerful. He is infinitely powerful. But he is also a God who loves. He's a personal God who loves. And this makes this confession even more comforting for us. Our God is not just a nameless force or some creative power. Our God is personal. He is, he is God the Father. He's the eternal Father of Christ. And that's our second point. Well, now, we, we sort of know where this is going. Right? We're heading in the direction of the fact that the true comfort in this is that God is, is our Father. That's the comfort here. That's where the main comfort in this confession lies for us, but we shouldn't rush there too quickly before understanding the relationship of God the Father and God the Son. Question answer 26 makes sure that this is emphasized in the very beginning of this answer. Right? And if we, if we strip this answer down to the most basic statement, we can see that it reads something like this. What do we believe when we confess what we confess? That the Father of Christ is my Father. If we strip away all of the details, all of the explanations, this is the truth that we are left with. This is the main statement. What are we, what are we confessing? We are confessing that the Father of Christ is my Father. Well, first of all, we have to understand what, what does it mean that God the Father is the Father of Christ? What do we know about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? Well, this is a relationship of perfect communion, perfect unity. This is a unity that existed eternally. Jesus teaches this so much, especially in the Gospel of John, he says there in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. There's this unity between Father and Son. He says to Philip in, in uh, chapter 14, verse 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. They are one in essence. John 17, Jesus prays for the unity among us that we may be one even as he and the Father are one. And he says also at, in that same chapter, he says, Father, glorify your Son, glorify me now with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Father and Son, co-eternal with the same majesty, the same glory. And this is a relationship of unspeakable love. During Jesus' ministry on earth, while his identity is being revealed as the Messiah, 
As the anointed one of God, this is what God the Father declares about him. This is my son whom I love. And we have to recognize that it's out of that love that the Father has for the Son that this plan of salvation for us is shaped. Right? We, we celebrate, we, we rejoice in the fact that salvation is for us, that salvation is something that, that is wonderful news for us. But the greater purpose of all of this is that God the Father loves the Son and He wants His Son to be exalted. He wants to lift up the name of His Son so that His Son receives all honor and praise and glory. This is why Paul in Ephesians 1 hammers down this point over and over that God's eternal plan of salvation was always in Christ. Was always in Christ His Son. So that his name would be exalted. In Philippians 2 we read that God gave his son Jesus Christ all of his work to accomplish. So that at the glorious name of Jesus Christ every knee would bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the praise of his glory. This is the love of God for the Father. This is the relationship of God this is the love of God the Father for His Son. Now we sit and ponder that fact for a minute. Just the, the bare fact of fatherly love for His child. Generally speaking, how much do fathers love their children? It's unconditional, right? It's it's immeasurable. How can you ever quantify the love that a father has for a child? Now, this is a challenge as well because fathers are not perfect. And we have to be careful when we, when we take what we know about fatherhood and then in some way, in some degree, project that onto God, even though God reveals himself as Father, we have to be careful not to project also these shortcomings onto God. The reality is that earthly fathers fail. All fathers have failures, and, and, and some fathers fail really, really horribly. Instead of loving their children, they mistreat them. There are too many stories of fathers who are absent, fathers who abandon their children, fathers who don't provide for them, fathers who lie to their children, fathers who, who would even abuse their children in different ways. And so it's perfectly imaginable that for someone who has been abused by a father, someone who has not had a very positive experience with their own earthly father, that they would hear, God is, is our father? Well, that doesn't sound very good. The only thing I know about fatherhood is, is really tragic and, and awful things. Why would we want that in, 
in a supernatural God. We want a supernaturally bad father? Well, this is how some earthly fathers fail, but this is not God. God is the first father. He is the best father, the perfect father. Whatever you might imagine the best father in the world to be, one who never fails, one who always provides everything perfectly for his children, the father who is steadfast, the one who is dependable, who teaches and leads you and helps you grow, one who is perfectly just and wise, the one who wants to lift you up and even exalt you because you are his child whom he loves. None of our fathers could ever be this perfect. None of the fathers sitting or standing here could ever come close to, to that perfection. But that's who our Heavenly Father is. That's who God the Father is for His Son, Jesus Christ. There's no fault in Him. There's no way He's ever lacking in love for His Son. The Son about whom He says, This is my Son, whom I love. And it's through this Son of His that he becomes our father. And that's our third point. And this is, where, this is where this all comes together. This is where this becomes so exceedingly comforting for us. God the Father and the Son have perfect unity. God the Father loves the Son perfectly, never lacking. But how do we square that? How do we square that with the truth about what the father planned for his son to go through? How do we square the love of the father for his son with the fact that God was willing to put his son through such excruciating things? That his son, whom he loved, would suffer, that he would die, that he would endure hell that he would be forsaken by his father in such an unspeakable way. Why would God do this to the son whom he loves? Well, he did all this so that we would be able to call him father too. We recognize as was mentioned earlier in the sermon, that, yeah, this world is corrupt. It's sinful. Why is it this way? It's this way because of the fall into sin. Right? The fall into sin rendered the world as it is now, but it also put us in a very terrible position in relation to God. It separated us from Him. It made it so that we, we, we can't call God Father anymore. He's only... A terrifying judge because of this sin. But in eternity, before the world began, God had already determined that, that he would bring us back. That he would cleanse us from our sins and make us acceptable to him. That he would make a way for his justice to be satisfied. For sins to be paid for. That we would be made new again. That we would be saved from being lost forever. And that we would once again be brought into this father-child relationship. Triune God 
determined this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God determined that the way of salvation would be through the sacrifice of the Son. And God the Son was willing to take this on. He was willing to become a man, to humble himself, to empty himself of glory, to take on our punishment and restore us to God. This is why we can call God our Father. Quite often we enter into prayer, a time of prayer, with that invocation, calling upon God. We say, our Father in heaven. And, and if you're anything like me, you'd say it sometimes without really thinking about how rich that is. The fact that you are allowed to call him Father. It's because of this. Before the world even began, God determined that you were going to be his child. God sent his son to, to go through everything he went through simply because God was determined that he would love you. That's what it means to be loved by a heavenly father. That's one thing that we have to remember. It's not as though, it's not as though generic salvation becomes available through Jesus' work. So Jesus does all of this work, and then, and then a way is open. And then once the way is opened, then God decides, okay, now I can, I can love some people. Or, or you believe in him, you believe in Christ, and then God's, God decides that now you are worthy of his love. No, God's love, his fatherly love for you, precedes everything else. This is something that we hear all the time when we celebrate Lord's Supper, Romans 5, verse 8. God shows his love, God demonstrates his love for you in that while you were still a sinner, while you were still legally separated from him, while you were still his enemy, Technically not allowed to call him father yet, God sent his son whom he loved to suffer and die for you. That's God's fatherly love for you. This is the God we confess. The creator, the infinitely powerful and wise God, the eternal loving father of Christ, who has perfect unity with his son and his spirit, he would be willing to do this just because he loved you and wanted to bring you and restore you to himself. And then the confession continues, in him, so this God, this loving father, in him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he would provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and he will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do this as Almighty God. We can see his power in his creation. He proves it to us. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and he is willing also as a faithful father. He can do it. He's able to bring you to him, and he's willing. How beautiful is that? 
to actually believe that God is willing to bring you to himself, as filthy as we are, as worthless as we are in ourselves, he is willing to bring you to him at such a great cost to his son. This is so clear from his willingness to send his son. If, if he wasn't willing to bring you to himself, he would not have sent his son. He would not have done it, but he did. If he's willing to do that, how much more can you be sure that in this life he will provide you with everything that is needed for your salvation? Everything that is needed for your body and for your soul, both in this life and in the life to come. That your Father will provide you everything that is necessary for Him to lead you and guide you and teach you, to nurture you and shape you into what He intends you to be, to what He is recreating you into, to bring you into the glorious future that He's prepared for you, to protect you and guide you as only a, a loving and perfectly Perfectly loving Heavenly Father could. This is our God. This is the confession of the church. And how joyfully we profess this to be true and certain. Amen.